Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, today we have uh, with us uh, Dr. Nadia Khan. Uh, it's a pleasure to have her uh, here in the podcast and uh, has been a, a, a difficult one to get uh, time. So we're really honored to be able to interview Nadia today. So Dr. Khan is a professor and head of the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of uh, British Columbia, Canada. She was a Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research Career Scientist in Gender, Ethnicity and Chronic Disease Management, and is a Clinician Scientist in Health Services Research and Epidemiology at the Center for Health Evaluation and Outcome Sciences in Vancouver, Canada. Dr. Ken is a General Internist at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, the Co-Director of the Hypertension Clinic at St. Paul's Hospital. She's also the immediate past president of Hypertension Canada and a member of the executive committee of the International Society of Hypertension, where she also leads the research and education committee. Nadia, thank you so much for accepting to do this interview with us. Um, I'm really honored to be uh, talking to you today. Thank you. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk on this subject. So um, what we usually ask uh, to get started is uh, for you to tell us about your story and how you ended up in hypertension. I actually had ended up in hypertension sort of by accident. I was uh, doing my fellowship in general internal medicine, and I happened to have as one of my preceptors on one of my rotation, Professor Norm Campbell, which I think everyone knows around the world is the hypertension public health expert and specializing in, in sodium and uh, the public health implications of, of uh, excess sodium in the diet. So it was really uh, an amazing opportunity that I had to work with him. And he actually introduced me then to Hypertension Canada. And I had just finished my training and he had invited me to join the Hypertension Canada guidelines group. So I had then an opportunity to meet more and more hypertension specialists and the guideline makers. And then I was hooked. I really liked the subject area. I loved working with the people and really found that my participation, I had drew quite a bit of meaning from it and found the whole experience rewarding. And then, you know, just being in that environment, um, which is amazing medical education, continuous medical education, um, it just it just leapt from one thing to another, and then uh, in, including hypertension research, and all the way to where I am today, which is uh, speaking to all of you. No, that's lovely. We interviewed Norm um, some months ago, and it was really lovely as well. And his podcast is due to be released soon, so that's really nice. Yeah, and um, you spend a lot of uh, um, time dedicating. Um, you spend a lot of uh, your time dedicated to committee work, uh, including to Hypertension Canada and now to the ISH as well. I was wondering if you can comment on why do you think that that's important and how participating in these committees have uh, helped you to advance your career or, as you mentioned as well, to find uh, meaning? Yeah, so, you know, I think with each committee that I had joined and Hypertension Canada, 
the the board and the, that committee I had joined um, really only recently, but when I started was a guideline group. And, and I think you have to examine which committees you're going to be joining and at what stage of career you're in. It's very important to look at who is the environment, who's a part of that committee, what are the goals of that committee. And I found that, you know, some committees where I joined them, like the guideline group were instrumental in, in networking, meeting other specialists, uh, making an impact in hypertension management. So right off the bat, those kinds of committees were very rewarding and also very helpful as someone who's junior in their career. And then, you know, later on after my career was much more established, then I joined different kinds of committees where I had an opportunity to speak about, you know, how to help the next generation of, of hypertension researchers and hypertension specialists. So all the committees, it really does depend on um, what stage you're in in your career, but I've really found each of them had their own benefits. And I think that's a key thing is to really look at them. I think sometimes when you're junior, you can become overcommitted on committees. And so it's really important to be a little bit choosy about which committees and, and what would be the what would be your opportunity to, to make an impact or a difference? I yeah, no, I love that. That's very good advice. Thank you. And um, we'll uh, now switch a little bit to uh, talk about mentoring, which is a, a big, uh, big topic for us at the ISH and also for this podcast. Um, can you uh, define your mentorship experience in one word for us, please? So I guess the word would be, it's a privilege. It's really, I would say, a privilege to be in a position to help someone and they, you know, they, they reveal what their barriers and issues are. And so you really get that privileged opportunity to help an individual and maybe change, maybe, just maybe change the course of their career. And that's a really a special opportunity. And I I just encourage anyone who's thinking about being a mentor to become a mentor. Uh, really can make a difference in someone's complete career trajectory, saving them, uh, helping them go, get in a new direction. Um, and it can be an incredibly rewarding and valuable experience. Absolutely. And I think privilege is also good for the mentee because um, like people like yourself are incredibly busy and someone like you uh, giving the opportunity to mentor someone, it's also a privilege for them to have that opportunity to learn from you. So yes, yeah, so that's a lovely word. I really like it. And do you think mentoring is important? I would say it's critical. And there's, there's, you know, there's, there's mentoring and there's coaching and there's also sponsorship. And I think Mentoring is very important and sponsorship is perhaps even more important. And it's really getting someone to advocate for you and to help you. So in your local area, I think having uh, someone to help you with sponsorship is really critical. They can, they can connect you to others. And that's where, you know, if a mentor can be both, that's, that would be amazing. And I think that's something that the ISH does quite well is to try to connect people with um, others that will help them in their career. And you need someone to advocate for you. You need someone to help, um, help you pick up, you know, when, if you get a rejection from a, 
a grant or a, a journal paper article rejection. You need someone to help you and, and strategize with you. So all of those elements are so critical. I think very few people in this world will make it without a mentorship. And I, I do have this sort of saying, it, it, takes a, it takes a village to raise an independent researcher. And so, you know, you, you have to sort of, I think nowadays look at teams of people. So there'll be several mentors, uh, several different sponsors that you will need to have access to and, and to work from and, and at different times of your life. And so at different stages of your career. So it's really a, a village of mentorship that you need. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And is, was there a specific time in your career that you realized that you needed a mentor? Well, I actually had a mentor right from, right from day, I would say day one. And I had uh, Professor Norm Campbell, Professor Bill Galley, these were two of my mentors that were that were with me actually since I was a, a trainee. And so they were instrumental in guiding me to that first hurdle, which was, you know, getting yourself started on an independent research career track and helping me with, with advice that I needed for getting my first academic position at a university. So that was really instrumental. So I would say the mentorship should begin even before you get your first academic appointment. I completely agree, yeah. And uh, what is your personal mentoring style? And um, is there any specific examples that you can think of of ways that you have now helped your mentees? Yes, I think, um, so my, my personal style is to really keep trying to get them to get to the next level. So it's a, the growth mindset. So whatever level they're at, it's really coaching people for the next, the next, um, the next horizon. And, you know, I, I always thought of it, you know, when, when I was taking my daughter for horseback riding lessons and she had a coach and the coach every, you know, one minute was giving her a different piece of advice. And I felt at the end of that, I thought, wow, I really got my money's worth out of that coach. And so I thought, well, that's really the same thing that you want from your mentor is that someone who's always willing to help you, always um, willing to help lead you into that, that, that same direction and, and not just to sort of pat you on the back and say, that's good, that's good, but really trying to help you grow. So that's sort of my mentoring style is really trying to help people reach that next horizon. Um, and, uh, and I think that you, one example that I had, I had one researcher who was very, very well qualified and had hit a snag where they just uh, weren't able to get to that first level of um, getting their first independent research grant. And there was a threat over their looming in the background that I had, they had so many years in order to get their next grant, otherwise, they would lose their research funding, research salary support, and then they would therefore not be able to be a researcher any longer. And they had to go on a pure clinical stream. And they were really, you know, almost despondent with the fact that they weren't going to be able to make to that next level. So we had just strategized and brainstormed about an idea to put through for a grant. They, they did the grant application. It wasn't even in my field. And we talked about, you know, uh, having, you know, submitting the grant to many different 
types of competitions. And then the, the, the mentee actually got the grant. And then from there, gained the confidence to subsequently the following year, get another one. And then at this time, everyone had seen that he'd gotten two grants in successively. And then he was off to the races and is just doing fabulously, but just had to get over that, that first hurdle. And, and I can understand that like sometimes like uh, grants these days uh, are so competitive to get and it can feel quite personal, even though we know that it is a huge component of just luck of who read it and whether they liked it or not. That's and, right. And it's hard and, and it can feel, and I know I have felt that way, that it, it feels quite personal and you feel like perhaps I'm not good enough to be doing this. Exactly. Exactly. And you, you, you do need that sort of what, what's the strategy, you know, what, how do you, how do you get a grant cross that finish line where it's got a good chance of funding and, you know, what's the approach? How do you, how do you do that? And so we discussed all of those kinds of things and, and, you know, and it's so true. You can feel devastated actually, because you invest so much time and, you know, you're almost married to your idea. So it's, um, it, you can definitely completely take it personally. I completely understand that. Yeah. yeah. So now men- mentors have been uh, essentially my career path as well to um, get over yeah, the um, disappointment and give it another shot. And, uh, and yeah, not, uh, mentors are definitely amazing in uh, keeping us motivated and keeping us on track. And believing yeah. in uh, the mentees, many times when the mentees don't believe in themselves, yeah, so it's so important. Yeah. Yes. That's a great example, Tim. And what traits do you think a good mentee has? I think I think to make it in research, you need a certain level of persistence. And I I think it is it is really a challenging world. And I don't I think we don't give ourselves enough credit that, like you were saying, it is commonplace to get rejected. And it's, you know, most fields, you don't see that. Like, you know, if you're, if you're going to be a physician, you don't get, you know, that that's not how that world works. So I think for research, it, it um, does require a certain amount of, of persistence um, and perseverance and really being able to look at things almost in a, in a detached way and sort and say, you know, okay, I, I did this. Okay. Um, this is the feedback I got, what feedback from this is important, what feedback um, does not actually make sense, and I'm going to push through. And so I I think persistence, perseverance is is just so critical, you can be the brightest mind, um, have the most brilliant ideas, be an amazing writer, logical thinking. But if you don't have that sense of persistence, perseverance, it's very challenging. Completely agree. It's a, it's a hard um, hard area to be in, and you need to have that um, persistence. Otherwise, it's very easy to give up. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have any advice on how mentees can identify a good training environment? Because we know that not every single place is a great place. Um, so mm-hmm. how how can we uh, improve the way that we identify a good place? Well, I think a few things. One is to speak to the, you know, the supervisor that you're hoping to work with. And, and I think it also depends on how much time that supervisor has for you. Uh, 
you know, if someone is too busy, they're not going to be able to be the right person unless they have an incredibly well-organized laboratory or system where, where their trainees uh, excel. And then you can also talk to the trainees that work with that supervisor and see how are they doing? Um, were they able to lead their own experiments? Were they ever able to lead their own projects? Uh, how much productivity did they have? How much support did they have? What happened to them? How many of them have gone on to, to be awarded scholarships? How many of them have gone on to academic positions? Have they gone on to academics? Have they gone on to industry? Does that match your goals? So I think really looking at their, their success in those departments is a very good indicator. And um, how did you overcome talking to someone you found intimidating? And we asked that, um, I think because I, I feel intimidated by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So I find it difficult um, sometimes to go and talk to a lot of people. Um, so do you have any advice on how you overcome, if, if that was ever an issue for you, how you overcame that? You know, I, I think that um, I, to be honest, did feel comfortable talking to people. Um, and I think maybe I was just uh, naive and I, and I just uh, felt that people would be willing to speak to me. And, but now that, you know, I, I have met so many people over the years that have been so successful and I find that they're really truly lovely people. And so even though someone seems intimidating, um, they're honestly, almost everybody I've met has been so incredibly lovely. Um, and they would, they would be really warm and welcoming to speak to you. And I think that I didn't think that they wouldn't be, but I can see how others might feel that way. The reality is that they're all warm and lovely. So I would say that um, reaching out to people, um, especially if you know someone, like if you're somehow connected to someone, say it, say for example, you want to speak to somebody at the ISH, then you could say, you know, I am a member of the ISH and I attended, you know, your talk. And I was just wondering if I could ask you X, Y, Z, um, just somehow making that connection. So it doesn't feel like it's a, a cold call, as we say, I don't know if that's an international term, but um, just so that we, uh, that you're not really speaking out of the blue, but honestly, I think people are much more open than, than you, than you would think. And, you know, people, people, it's a natural instinct that people get um, that are, are delighted to see um, people that are excited and passionate about an area. So I think to see somebody else that's, you know, passionate and excited about an area, I think every human responds to that. So I think if you are that way about a subject, you can speak to somebody that, that you know, is, is dedicated and passionate and excels in an area. Yeah, no, I, I like that advice. Thank you. <laughs> That's really good. Um, and um, next, um, we also always want to have a bit of a chat about some of, uh, I think, the biggest barriers uh, that we have in our field. Uh, and these are about diversity and inclusion. 
-hmm. And I know that you are a strong advocate for that. So I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on this. Um, so I was wondering if you can comment on what you think is the biggest barrier for uh, diversity and inclusion and how we can try to change that, particularly in our field and in our society. You know, so I think with the diversity and inclusion, it's it's um, very much a growing field. And I think, you know, we've we've always sort of been focused on on women's issues and I think also on ethnicity and there's much more diversity that that you know we it's clearly obvious that we we've somehow systematically are not around us you don't see very many um, researchers that have disabilities for example um, so clearly why not you know so I think there, there are many different aspects of diversity that we've not even yet scratched the surface on why, why we're not including them, why, how can we help those many groups uh, become a part of the research world or academic world. Um, so if I was just to focus on the ones that we know about, which are you know, the ones that, that there have been lots of studies on of, of women and, and different ethnic groups, we know that they face um, they they face a significant amount of of uh, unconscious bias, and I think that that is you know that is something that thankfully now I would say in 2022 people are more aware of. And there was a study that did show that if two CVs went out to different research intensive universities in the United States. And I think even Francine, you and I have talked about this before, but um, they were identical CVs and one had a woman's name and one had a man, characteristically man's name, one had a characteristically woman's name. And the, the candidate with the characteristically man's name was considered much more hireable. They had much more mentorship. They received a higher pay. The, uh, the CV from the woman's uh, name uh, was considered much more friendly and likable, but then again, less hireable, felt less competent, and they were identical CVs. So I think women are facing this unconscious bias and we really need to shine the spotlight on the unconscious bias. And so that, that these different, and, and the same studies have been done with ethnic sounding names as well. Um, and so really need to, to shine the light on that and really, uh, enforce things like uh, ensuring that there's those issues are discussed. There's equity in the hiring committees, equity in um, in in the compositions of committees. That those those factors are dealt with at every level. So, for example, conference organizing, members of your committees, um, publications, papers. Like, how are you unconsciously excluding people? Um, and so those things have to become front and center. And I would say under the um, uh, Professor Tomaszewski's vision, he really, uh, that was one of his major mandates, if I could speak for him, it was one of his major mandates. And at the research and education committee, that became something that we were very, became very passionate about. And we, we worked on those uh, with the Women in Hypertension Research Committee to make sure that we had 
greater representation of women and people from all different uh, parts of the world, um, different career stages, because I think there's also an exclusion of younger people in academics or early stage investigators. So we want to make sure that we were being much more inclusive. And it really, it really boiled down to just having that as one of our mandates. So when every decision we made, we felt, we asked ourselves, have we done, have we done the right thing by making sure that we are inclusive? Because there's talent everywhere. And that's the reality. There's talent all over this world. And if you're just focusing on talent, say from the Western world and from, from certain types of, of people, then you're going to be missing a lot of that, that talent and that diverse uh, perspectives that are going to be so important. Uh, so it was really just focusing and, and uh, gearing for that. I think that's what organizations can do um, to help. And then individuals, like what do individuals do that are facing this? And I, I think it's just incredibly difficult. And I think people don't really fully understand what it's like to always feel um, or to sometimes feel that it is this, you know, did I, did I not get this because, because I, I, because on merit or because it was an issue of diversity? You're always second guessing that. So I think it's important, again, this is the whole purpose of having a team. Uh, it takes a village to raise an independent investigator. Well, I think it, it, uh, it's really important for uh, people that are, that um, women researchers, different, different types of research, however you identify yourself, um, to make sure that you've got good positive support systems that can advocate for you. Um, because I, I, we, it's needed because the, the playing field is in fact not even. So that extra boost and that extra advocacy is needed to make the playing field even. No, absolutely. And um, from my experience as well, um, with the High Blood Pressure Council, Council of Australia, I'm one of the uh, program managers. And it is so easy when we're thinking of names to just put down a list of names and then look back and see that we named a lot of men. Exactly. So we, it takes an, um, a conscious effort to make yeah. sure that we're being inclusive. And, uh, and we need to be constantly looking at every single stage that we look at. And these days we're very good, but like the first years that we were doing the conference, was hard because we had to be constantly thinking, did we do the right thing? Did we think uh, and include enough women and include enough diversity, not just in terms of uh, gender, but also across different career stages and different uh, uh, types of science, different uh, states in Australia even. And um, my other experience uh, similarly has been with this podcast that um, I decided to uh, take a map of the world and start putting all the names of people that we had interviewed in the map. And it became quite clear that we did a really good job interviewing women. I think about 60% or close to 60% of our guests have been women. But when we look into the distribution, there was very clearly over-representation of certain areas in the world. So we start then trying to find uh, um, names and uh, guests that we could interview in other regions to make sure that we had also that global distribution because the ISH is global. Exactly. But, yeah, exactly. But it's a conscious effort. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think that people shouldn't, you know, I think, I think, I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, and anyone, 
it doesn't matter like as a woman myself, it, it, it could be anyone can have that unconscious bias. Um, so it's, you know, it happens to anyone. So people, it, people shouldn't feel badly that they have that unconscious bias, but to, to try to work on and correct it, as you say, and as you noted in your example, and to always try to aim for improvement um, is, is the goal. Absolutely, yeah. And do you have any advice for women in hypertension research specifically? I think, you know, um, I think, you know, that, and I had um, uh, spoken before about this topic, but it's something that I've really realized a few things that, that I think are really important. One is that you've obviously heard, I think everyone's heard of the leaky pipeline that for decades we've had lots of women in, in hypertension research or in medicine and along the way we lose them and to ascend to that level of full professor or department chairs or deanships um, th that's that becomes rarer and rarer and I think really I think that a lot of effort um, needs to be done in mid-career so we always think about mentorship and support for early career and I would say for for women, you, we actually need that level of support, um, mid-career and senior career, even more, even more importantly than, than even in early career, because there are these hurdles and suddenly you feel like you're in mid-career or women are in mid-career and um, they don't, they're in an island to themselves because they've achieved so much already. So they feel maybe this isn't the right time to have a mentor. Um, that you have mentors are, are often equated with early career people, but actually that sort of support system is really critical to get women all the way through. And, and like I said, it's, it's not because there, that there's any weakness in women, it's just that the playing field is not even. And you need that support. And that support doesn't have to just come from other women. It can come from men as well. And again, you, women need, um, women and other diverse groups need that uh, level of support, endorsement, sponsorship. And again, it's just because the playing field is not even and all throughout their career, it's even more important. Yeah, and that's something that I, as I'm transitioning to mid-career that I have noticed a lot as well, that uh, when you are in early career research, there's so many grand opportunities mentoring is uh, much more available and supported uh, and as you transition into mid-career that's when you face some of the big hurdles about becoming an independent scientist attracting your own grants building your team and yeah we need a lot more support than we have yeah exactly exactly and I, I found as well that another issue is that um, we get trained as uh, researchers um, to do research. We don't really get trained into managing people, managing budgets, um, into doing all the other work that is fundamental as an independent uh, researcher, um, but we have no skills really to do that. So, uh, yeah. This it, is so true. true. <laughs> that, that is so true. And I think this is, I mean, I think this is something that we really hit on really something very important here. And that is things like human resources, like conflict management, 
uh, budgeting, um, you know, all of these things, office management, all of these aspects, like you said, we're not trained in and you kind of learn on your own. Um, and then you can, you know, you know, uh, you can unfortunately learn lessons the hard way, but I think it makes better sense that if we start concentrating on some of these mid-career issues uh, that, that you've pointed out, you know, so well, uh, these aspects in leadership, keeping your team together, um, you know, we think these things are intuitive, but they're really not. And we need training, like we needed training for anything else. Uh, so I think that this would be something that an organization uh, should take on because it's it's so critical for getting to that next stage, which is you know where people fall down. I think is is pitfalls in in these kinds of things, or they or they can't build their teams. Teams stay small and they can't get to that next level because they didn't weren't able to you know they couldn't organize themselves or couldn't organize their budgets or, you know, all of those things uh, that were so critical. And uh, I think another issue is also having a good environment within a team. And that also takes an enormous amount of effort. And again, something that we are not really taught, like as a, uh, doing our training as a uh, researcher. So it is something that uh, a lot of people can get wrong. And I think it can do a lot of damage to uh, for the junior researchers as a result. So it is something that we need to be incredibly aware. And, um, and if it's not something that we have the experience to do, that we search for mentors and for resources to try to build that expertise. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's so right. Um, how do you, you know, when you're, when you have that privileged position of, of having junior people with you, you're really working to help build their career. You know, that's sort of the, the idea behind having these junior people is, is really that. And, and to make sure that you're in an environment where that is clearly something that is a goal within that supervisor, that that lead is to help other people build their own careers. Um, so yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that point. And my last question to you today is about the impact of the pandemic. So in the past two years, um, I'm not sure like in Canada, but in Australia, we have had an enormous impact uh, with uh, labs being closed, clinical trials uh, having to stop. Um, funding hasn't really been extended. There are so many issues that are affecting particularly our junior scientists. I have, for example, some PhD students who have never been to face-to-face conference or presented face-to-face before. So I was wondering if you have any ideas of what we as a community could do to better support our junior scientists and researchers. That's a great question. And I, I completely agree. I think there's so many people's research was derailed with the pandemic and really for many people could not get back on track. And yet, Others were able to pivot quite nicely and really capitalize on COVID research and they've done quite well, but other people, uh, it's, you know, those opportunities haven't been there and they've been really stuck. And I think, you know, as a, I am hoping that, you know, as, as in the near future, people are 
and organizations are deciding to sort of get back on track uh, to pr prior to the COVID uh, pandemic and really help expand funding. But I think in, in these times, if that doesn't look like that's a future, then I think you know, what I've seen is that people who have pivoted towards research that is, is maybe connected somehow to the pandemic have been able to benefit, but that's not really possible for everyone. An organization like the ISH, I think, can help people with in terms of strategizing uh, because it's been quite a while and people may have lost momentum. They may have had ruts in their publication. Um, and then how can we get, you know, how can we continue our productivity um, even though, you know, certain aspects of our research have stopped. And I, I also, you know, want to make certain note that, that that's incredibly true that some people have really only entered into the field in a virtual environment and they've never had a chance to speak to people one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And I, I think like in as safe of a method as is possible, having outdoor meetings, socially distanced so that you can have those more in-person opportunities, the better. Uh, I think, you know, at least for the upcoming ISH meeting in Kyoto, it's planned to be in-person or, or a hybrid virtual option as well, but there is in-person opportunities, I think, coming up. So I, I hope that we can, you know, continue to take advantage of those. But I think in terms of, of the ISH, I think to reach out to the, like, for example, Women in Hypertension Research Committee or your mentors about how, how can they strategize with you on how best to um, shift or continue your productivity in these these unprecedented and difficult times. No, absolutely, I think that's uh, very important. Yeah, and uh, I hope we can continue to work as a community to try to address some of these issues because the impact is not just immediate. We're going to see that impact for years to come. Yeah, mm -hmm. particularly for women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, unfortunately, yeah. so. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Nadia. This has been a great pleasure and I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.